0: The following podcast is a member of the Pokecasters Network. Pokecasters Network, supporting Pokemon content creators, their shows, and the community of Pokemon fans. To find out more, check out pokecastersnetwork.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook. Welcome to the Pokepress Digest Podcast, a Pokemon news magazine show. Here you'll find some of the best content offered by our site. For more, visit us at pokepress.blogspot.com. This episode has two segments. In the first, I interview YouTube musician Jordan Moore. We talk about his channel, his recent graduation from college, and his covers of Pokéon music. If you want to know what it takes to put together a video with many instruments all performed by the same person, this is one you shouldn't miss. Our second segment is a discussion of the music of Pokéon Puzzle League for the N64 and from the TV Podcast assist me in analyzing the tunes, most of them from the anime dub, that appear in this game. As usual, we run into a few surprises along the way. If you want to know what we thought of the game itself, be sure to listen after the outro. Thanks. Hi folks, Steven here. I'm on the phone with Jordan Moore, has done a number of covers of video game music, including Pokemon, as well as a number of classical uh, pieces of music, and he runs a YouTube channel, and we're going to talk about some of his work there and stuff like that. First of all, Jordan, where are you from,
1: and how'd you get into Pokemon? Hi, everyone, and thank you for having me on here, Stephen. I am originally from Columbia, Maryland, which is a suburb of Baltimore, and I still live in the Baltimore area right now. Um, I got into Pokemon when I was very young, about four, and it's because I had older siblings who are, um, six and 10 years older than me and they were also into Pokemon and they, you know, they had all the games. We had our Game Boy Colors and they had Pokemon cards as well. They're really into card tournaments actually. And so when I was only four or five, I think I was playing Pokemon Silver on, um, the Game Boy Color and it's always been my favorite video game franchise. It holds, you know, the most special place in my heart. And I've played a lot of games, not so much recently, but I'm getting back into it now. So that's how I got into it. Neat stuff. Yeah, the older
0: sibling story that kind of explains uh, how you you just got uh, out of, I guess, college or stuff like that. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your musical background, your training, your education, instruments you play, stuff like that?
1: Yeah. So. I started getting into music also in elementary school. I started on piano, although I didn't keep up with piano lessons for so long. But first and second grade, I kind of took some piano lessons. And then in third grade, I started on cello. And I also didn't really keep up with that. But then finally, in fourth grade, I switched to band and I was playing euphonium. And I've stuck with euphonium as my primary instrument since then, all through school. And I majored in euphonium performance and also music education. Throughout middle school and high school, mostly, I was also really interested in just learning a lot of other instruments, uh, mostly wind instruments, so all the brass and the woodwinds. And over time, I picked up a lot of those. By the time I got to college and was majoring in music education, I didn't actually have to take a lot of those methods classes because I already played those other wind instruments, too. And I went to college at Eastman, the Eastman School of Music in Rochester. And I just recently graduated with my degree in euphonium performance and music ed. So, now the euphonium—that's
0: not a super common instrument for folks to learn. Can you describe it a little bit? Is it like a, a woodwind type instrument or something like that, or?
1: No, absolutely, and that's a really common question, especially in the U.S. Sometimes in. Asia and Europe, they all know it a little bit better because of brass bands and other wind ensembles. But a lot of people in the U.S. ask that question. It's like a tuba, but it's a little bit smaller. It plays in the same range and actually has interchangeable mouthpieces with the trombone. So it's in that range, but it's, um, it has four valves, kind of like a tuba.
0: Gotcha there. All right. Well, so as I mentioned earlier, uh, you have a YouTube channel. How did that get started?
1: I first became interested in starting my own channel in 2011 when I was in middle school and I came across another person's channel, um, named David Eric Ramos, he plays ocarina and he makes a lot of ocarina videos, but he did kind of multi-track videos where he would record himself playing all the parts and put it together, like what I do now, and at that point I played a few instruments, maybe four or five, and I thought, whoa, that's, you know, that's something I could do, I could make my own little ensembles that way, and so that's how I was inspired to start, and I made my first video, it was the Tetris theme with just trumpets and euphoniums.
0: So that's how you got started. Uh, eventually, I think your first big break was a cover of Gourmet Race from the Kirby series. Uh, how did that one come
1: about? Yeah, with Gourmet Race, I knew the song from um, Kirby Superstar Ultra on my DS. And Gourmet Race was, I think the reason it was one of my first big videos is because it was it was two years after I started my channels in 2013. And I'd recently finally gotten a nice microphone. So that vastly improved the quality of my audio and it was essentially a wind ensemble cover it had ocarina in it as well which is something that i do a lot with my wind ensemble covers because i'm also an avid ocarina player so it was wind ensemble plus ocarina and you know had the percussion in there and everything but that's a lot of the novelty of some of my videos i do kind of one person wind ensemble videos and just because i play all of those instruments so i think that's the reason that one kind of took off and really helped my channel
0: yeah, so that was kind of a, a bit of a break, although I've noticed that your channel, you know, I, I, people talk about this a lot on YouTube, that uh, you'll get a couple videos that do really well, and you get a little bit of momentum for that, but not everyone, you know, crosses over to your other stuff. Uh, were you a little disappointed by that, or how did, how did you kind of react to that?
1: Yeah, with YouTube, especially back then, I was very just in it for myself, and not in a selfish way, but just be- I liked picking music that I was passionate about, whether it be video game music or classical music and writing my arrangements and just making them because I enjoyed doing it. And I think, you know, as a young person in middle school or in high school, it was great that I started looking at it that way. And I've been able to kind of keep that ideology because it's easy to get into the game of focusing too much on how many views your videos are getting, or how many subscribers you have. But I think, ultimately, you always want to make sure that you're having fun doing this. So I was maybe a little disappointed that the rest of my videos weren't getting as many views, but I just tried to remember that, you know, I love making music this way and that's, what's important. Glad to hear that. All right. Well, let's talk
0: about some of your Pokemon stuff then. So, one of the, the biggest one, I think it might actually be the most popular video on your channel, is a cover of Lugia's theme from Pokémon 2000. Uh, it took a lot of effort, it looks like. Uh, what exactly went into that one from a technical perspective?
1: Yeah, Lugia's song is one of my biggest projects that I've done, even though I did it five years ago, I still haven't really done something quite to that scale. It's a full wind ensemble with ocarina, and I recorded you know, every single part myself. It was all live. It's about 30 35 parts. And the reason I was inspired to do Lugia's song was because in Pokémon the movie 2000, uh, Melody plays this ocarina-like instrument. And the sound is very similar to what a real ocarina sounds like, too. And I really wanted to play that solo in the beginning on my actual ocarina and have this whole wind ensemble accompaniment. And the reason it was wind ensemble is really just because I play those instruments. I just took the orchestral version from the movie and reduced it down to a wind ensemble. And with the the editing, um, back then I was actually still using my video editing software to do the audio editing. So it wasn't super intuitive either. It probably took a lot more time than it should have, but I put it all together in my video editing software, both the audio and the video, all you know, 30-some tracks. So it was quite time-consuming. I think I made the whole thing over about a month over the summer.
0: That, that, sounds, about, that sounds about like the right amount of effort. How do you keep everything uh, synchronized like that? Do you use a click track
1: or something like that when you're doing each individual part? Or... Yes, I do use a click track. I use Finale as my music notation software, so usually I'll just add uh, click and Finale and then export the audio and record along to that. And that gives you the perspective on both the tempo and also the pitch to make sure you're playing as in tune as you can. Understood. All right. Well, let's talk about a couple of your
0: other Pokémon tracks. Uh, First of all, one of the other ones that I really like is your cover of Pokémon Johto, the third season dub theme from the anime. Why'd you pick that one out?
1: I picked Pokemon Johto. That's always been such a catchy theme. And I thought that... um, I thought it would go really well with Ocarina because of just how catchy it is and how kind of cute it is. And Ocarina just really enhances that. So I did it as an Ocarina Septet cover. And it was originally actually written for my actual Ocarina Septet. I play in a Septet with people from around America and we just meet a couple... Couple times a year, and we get together and do that. And it's one of our favorites because it's just so catchy, and you know, we're all bobbing around while we're playing it. And yeah, I was inspired to do that one. I just knew the tune from the anime. I had watched the anime, you know, when I was younger, growing up with my older siblings, of course. So that's why I was inspired to do the Pokemon Johto theme.
0: And then more recently, you did a cover of a song from Pokemon Gold and Silver, sort of coming full circle there. Uh, which one was that, and, and sort of how did that one uh, come together?
1: Yeah, so that recent one, um, just last month, was Cyanwood City and Equity City. I believe it's the same theme for both cities when it's in gold and silver, but then when you get to Heart Gold and Soul Silver, it's just the Cyanwood City theme. And that theme was, well, that video was inspired because of a contest, actually. A person named, well, his YouTube channel name is Soundle VGM Covers, and he's a clarinet player, and he also does some electronic wind instrument covers. But he holds this contest every year, and this was the first time I'd heard of it, where it's a contest of chill music. So, well, chill video game music. And so I, you know, went listening to some Pokemon songs, because that's, you know, my most loved video game franchise and tried to think of which ones were the most chill. And this one really just stood out. It just has that feeling. It just sounds so relaxing. And I decided to cover it with ocarinas, but also with French horn and euphonium, because they're all such mellow sounding instruments and they blend together and just have that warm and relaxing sound. So that's what inspired that cover. Sounds good. Uh, What are a couple
0: other recent ones you wanted uh, to mention here?
1: Yeah, another one is also a Pokemon cover, but it's from the Mystery Dungeon series is I Don't Want to Say Goodbye, and I did that one as an Ocarina Septet as well. A collaboration actually with a friend from my Ocarina Septet, Okabanda. His name is Stephen Higby, and he's doing some stuff on YouTube too, and we recorded the parts together for that one. So that was a fun one to do. Another big one that's not Pokemon specific was... Back in April, I did a cover of the Final Fantasy VII main theme. And that one was a big collaboration. I'd never done something on that scale before. It was involving 23 musicians. And it was a wind ensemble arrangement of the original, which was more orchestral. And so everyone kind of sent me their parts. And I put together similar to the way I did with Lugia's song. But I think it turned out better just because it's been a while since then. And I have some better software now. And because all of these people were playing their primary instrument. So they all just sounded fantastic. So that was another big one that I did recently.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely uh, working on stuff uh, time and time again, you will get better at it. And uh, I can understand why the new one, even if you did get a a bunch of help from other folks, uh, why you might think that one uh, turns out a little bit better audio-wise. All right, well, uh, do you want to talk about some of your future plans or things that are coming out soon for your channel?
1: Yeah, so with my channel... I have recently tried to get more serious about posting consistently because that's a big recommended thing for YouTubers. And for a while, that was two videos a month. But now I'm changing it a little bit more to one video a month because I'm actually going to start teaching in public schools this August. So I'm going to try and stick with that whole one video a month thing. And I'm going to spend a lot of time in summers doing most of my video making so that I can release videos throughout the year. I've also been really interested even more so in VGM recently, um, both composing and it's arranging video game music. So I'm hoping to have more original compositions coming onto my channel as well. I'd love to do more large wind ensemble covers. That's a big thing. A lot of those ones are the ones that kind of take off on my channel because of the whole novelty of having this whole virtual wind ensemble, especially when it's just me recording. So I want to set aside time to do some of those even though they're a little more time consuming and then finally i really want to start making albums soon i haven't released a full album or anything like that yet and i haven't actually said this anywhere else but i'm fairly certain the first video game music album i'm going to do is of all music from Hoenn, from the third generation of pokemon so just barely starting the plans for that now but i'm really looking forward to working on that
0: looking forward to that and uh you know, as the son of a music education teacher, I very much appreciate you going into the public schools and teaching that. Uh, what kind of social media presence? Do you have any accounts
1: you want to mention here? Sure. I have a Facebook that's Facebook at Jordan Moore and Jordan Moore is also the tag for my Instagram. I post, you know, a couple times a week on both of those. I've become more active on Twitter recently and the tag for that is J Moore underscore music. And I'll post more frequent updates just about what I'm working on there. So be sure to follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.
0: Alright. Well thank you very much Jordan. has been great having you on.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me soon.
0: All right, folks, thanks! Lullaby by Willifu... I mean Manda, probably didn't need those Jigglypuff samples to indicate what character prompted its inclusion, as the lyrics match quite well. The Puffball isn't the largest, strongest, or most intimidating Pokémon out there, but it does have another trick up its sleeve that it's more than willing to share, and the first verse summarizes that pretty accurately. As for the second verse, the primary Jigglypuff from the anime does appear many times throughout the series, making the term déjà vu very appropriate. Even the chorus manages to provide a provide good parallel, as the repeated use of the song's title mimics how most Pokémon say their name when talking. Finally, the inclusion of the word capture in the bridge hints, unintentionally of course, that sleeping Pokémon are easier to catch. As for the musical aspects, while Latin influence might seem more appropriate for a singing and dancing mythical Pokémon that would come many years later, it is still fitting for our cheery pink balloon. In any event, what do you think of this adopted character song? Be sure to let us know. Thanks. Hi folks, Steven here. I'm on the phone with Anne from V Podcast. And this is the next in our series of Pokemon side game music discussions. We had a little bit of a detour in our previous discussion, but uh, now we're back on the side game track, I guess you could call it. In any event, in this discussion, we're going to be talking about the music of Pokemon Puzzle League for the N64. Uh, Not to be confused with Pokemon Puzzle Challenge for the Game Boy Color that we'll be covering in uh, sometime up ahead when we get to that game. But this is the N64 game, and it, it's got kind of an interesting pedigree and, uh, and whatnot. Uh, but we're going to talk about sort of our experience with the game both then and now. We're also going to give you some details about the production of the game and who's behind it. And uh, we're going to go through some individual tracks like we usually do and then uh, kind of go from there. We'll also do a discussion uh, after the outro uh, where we talk about the game itself and sort of the mechanics and what we thought of it. Alright, so, Pokemon Puzzle League for the N64 has a bit of a, a complicated history, let's put it that way. So, as some of you are no doubt aware, uh, this is the follow-up to some, uh, really a, a, a Super Nintendo game. Really just one, but it was sort of, went through its own metamorphosis. Of course, back on the Super Nintendo, back in Japan in 95, there was a game called Panel de Pawn. And then that was brought over to the U.S. the following year as Tetris Attack, even though it's not really a Tetris game. But it was uh, changed from using uh, some sort of like uh, uh, fairy characters in the Panel de Pond game to using Yoshi's Island characters there. Um, And then a few years later on the N64 in 2000... Uh, we got this, which is Pokemon Puzzle League. And kind of interestingly, Puzzle League is sort of the name that's stuck in the West. In Japan, they still call it Panels upon for the more recent entries, but here in the in the West, the Puzzle League name is stuck, even though the Pokemon part of it has not. You know, going on from there, of course, this game has come out other ways since then. as the Pokemon Puzzle Challenge on Game Boy Color that came out uh, the same year as this, really. And then there's also, let's see, there was a puzzle collection game for the GameCube in Japan that had... Paled upon Yoshi's Cookie and Dr. Mario in it, and then there was the Game Boy Advance Dr. Mario Puzzle League game. And then there's a couple things on the DS like Planet Puzzle League, and then a smaller version of that. Sort of the last time we we've heard from this game is uh, back in 2016 when some amiibo stuff was added to Animal Crossing. They found a way to toss in some uh, Puzzle League stuff there, and, th- and they still call it there. But nothing nothing much since then. I haven't seen really anything on the on the on the Wii U or the Switch, um... Hey folks, quick update here. About a month after we record this, the original panel Dupone was added to Nintendo Switch Online. You're welcome! Side of things, although this uh, Pokémon Puzzle League was put on the original Wii Virtual Console, wasn't brought back for the Wii U Virtual Console, so uh, you're kind of out of luck if you need to purchase it that way because the original Wii Shop is closed. But, uh, yeah, that's sort of the long, complicated history of the Puzzle League franchise. As far as Pokemon Puzzle League, uh, before we get into sort of the, the background details, let's talk about how we kind of originally experienced this. First off, I had experienced uh, Tetris Attack before uh, playing this. I had played Tetris Attack on the uh, Super Nintendo, although I didn't own it until uh, a few years ago when I picked up a used copy. And then when this came out, uh, I figured I, I did ask for this. I think I must have gotten it based on when it was released in August of 2000 in the U.S., it looks like. Uh, I probably got it for my birthday that year. But I uh, played it then and uh, enjoyed it. It, it had some, some nice features that were, I guess, an upgrade from there. Um, and uh, you have a somewhat different history with this franchise. Uh, what sort of your personal experience the first time you played Pokémon Puzzle League? How would you get into it?
2: Um, My first time playing Pokemon Puzzle League was actually like fairly recently. like um, When we started deciding that we were going to do the various video game music project, uh, Puzzle League was one of the ones that I knew was going to be hard for me to track down. So I kind of started putting out feelers and keeping my eyes open, um, looking for a way to get a hold of it. And a friend of mine from college actually still had it. Um, So while we were catching up uh, one day, we had driven up to see each other um i was able to play a little bit of it and um i had kind of always planned to try to get a a hold of an actual copy and play some more but then the 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 lovely pandemic hit and so i kind of am relying a little bit on memories for this but I, i did get to play it a little bit and you know lose lose an hour of of time to to addictive tetris
0: well, yeah, like we said, it's not really technically a Tetris game. So you haven't had a chance to play any of the other iterations. I know you didn't play the, didn't play the Super Nintendo one. Never even on the on the DS, really, huh? No, no. Yeah, that was a that was a fairly uh, popular entry. So that's obviously this is, I guess, kind of like the trading card game one, another one of these side games that I have a a lot more experience with than Anne does, kind of unfortunately. But I'm glad you did get a chance to. To, to give it a try when when the opportunity presented itself. As far as, like I said, picking up a copy, not a super expensive game. Uh, you used to be able to get it on the Wii Virtual Console. I think they may not. There seem to be some emulation issues on there for some reason, which may be why they haven't brought it uh, forward um, again. But just to sort of um, lay the groundwork for the production of this game, the original, like, Tetris Attacks and Panel de Pond stuff on the Super Nintendo was done by Intelligent Systems, but this game was produced by Nintendo Software Technologies, which is a, a sort of a... It's a studio-based right in, in Redmond uh, at Nintendo's headquarters that was founded, I think, in the late 90s or so. They've worked on a number of kind of weirdish side projects, and uh, we'll be talking about some of those when we go into some of the folks who were involved here, but uh, it... Nintendo Software Technologies has somewhat of a relationship with the Digipen Institute, which is also based in that area, right around Nintendo's headquarters in North America, and that's sort of the story there. They've had kind of a just kind of a weird mishmash of of games that they've worked on. Like I said, but um, as far as this particular game, it's, it's unusual in a number of ways. Um, it was never released in Japan. Um, was released in North America and in Europe and maybe some other places, but definitely not in Japan. And it's based heavily uh, on the dub of the Pokémon anime in terms of its theming. So that makes it very much kind of an odd entry. It is a bit odd that they wouldn't bother to create a, a Japanese version, which I guess technically they could have done if they wanted to, to do that. But this was very much created for the Western N64 audience for whatever reason. And I don't suppose you had any other other details about sort of the uh, the game production itself before we get into the some of the people involved.
2: No, I was actually like trying to do some digging on what would maybe not make it a property they wanted to translate over to Japan, or or what would not make it viable. Music is the big one that comes to mind, um, just because these are all. Western releases, but that usually hasn't stopped a game from crossing borders before, like we've seen in a lot of other games that just gets rescored in those cases. So I'm not I'm not sure.
0: Okay. So uh being this is largely based on the Western version of the anime, there's a lot of uh the usual folks you would expect. Uh there's, you know, John Leffler, um Norman Grossfeld is credited in there, as are a number of four kids folks. But uh, what we're actually going to talk about here are a number of sound personnel on this game that we uh, tried to dig up some stuff. These folks are, I guess, a little bit less known. So there are two people who are listed as sound programmers. Uh, One of those is Rory Johnson, who I was able to find. He's still working at Nintendo, it looks like. He's uh, one of their top uh, engineers at Nintendo of America, it looks like. Uh, Other credits, uh, you'll hear a lot of these over and over again, but apparently he also worked on, let's see... Uh, Ridge Racer 64 and Ridge Racer DS. A bunch of the Mario vs. Donkey Kong games. And uh, apparently he also worked on the 3DS port of Super Mario Maker that came out a few years ago. Um, Then we have Emery Georges, the other sound programmer. And I was able to find a couple uh, games he's credited on, like the uh, Game Boy Color port of Crystallis, which I think they might have redone the music for that one for some reason. As well as Nintendo Puzzle Collection, that Japanese only game uh probably some sort of somehow derived from his work on this one, and something called Homeworld, which I guess is some other thing uh Unfortunately, I wasn't able to find out what he's really doing now or where he is now um and I don't suppose uh you have any thoughts on those two folks for the time being?
2: I'm um, not on those two folks no they're they're not names that we have discussed before, really, kind of a surprise that we don't know more about them.
0: Yeah, I would love to to know more. I think sometimes the Japanese folks are a little easier, even though their info is usually in Japanese. Sometimes you can find a bit more there, but... Uh, Next up is Lawrence Swedler, who is listed as the audio director and also is listed on uh, the original score, but he's not like a four-kids person as far as I know. So I'm guessing there's a small amount of original music in this game, and I'm guessing he was involved with that. Um, But as far as what he's doing, apparently he did work for Nintendo for a while, and then he moved over to the DigiPen Institute, sort of their educational branch. Not educational software, an actual institute of education in 2012 is what I have for him. So not much since there, but apparently I guess he's working on curriculum or teaching there or something like that. Okay, so even though this was a Western-only release, we do have one Japanese name on there, and that is Ryoji Yoshitomi. Yoshitomi is apparently credited with sound effects and uh, has a bit of an interesting uh, track history, I suppose. Uh, One of the things he apparently worked on is Super Scope 6. So for those of you who don't know what that is, back on the Super Nintendo, there was this peripheral that was sort of the evolution of the Zapper called the Super Scope, and um, it came with a six-game package that had a couple, uh, speaking of puzzle games, had a, a couple Tetris variants called Blastris, And uh, also had a bunch of, like, uh, combat-type games, so he apparently worked on that. It's also listed as working on the Game Boy Camera, which you may recall was a Creature's Game Freak production, so that may have put him into the Pokémon orbit, if that was relevant here.
2: I was going to say, I have in my notes uh, that he does a lot of work with the Wario franchise, so I'm pretty sure he's kind of on Nintendo's speed dial just in general.
0: Yeah, I did see uh, at least Wario Land 4 and I think some of the WarioWare games. Uh, also, the Wii Fit series. And one of his more recent credits is on arms. Uh Generally in the sound pr- uh, design or whatever process there, it seems like he's still uh, working on various things. So that's good to see. All right, well, and then there's someone listed as a music production coordinator. His name is Julian Swors. And, you know, maybe that's a typo or something because I was able to find a musician by that name. Unfortunately, he was born in, it looks like, uh, 1990 or 1991, so it would have been about nine when this game came out. So that's probably not the right person. Um, so kind of unfortunate there. I, I, I couldn't find out too much there. Uh, and any other thoughts on some of the folks involved in the sound slash music side of this game?
2: The credit list that I'm looking at has um, the original musical score. There's like almost... Like nine people on there. Um, some of them, people we've talked about, like John Siegler, Ralph Shuchat. um and then also like people who I couldn't find any information on at all, like Mary M- Mari or Mary Corallo.
0: I think that's a typo because I'm pretty sure it's Manny Corallo.
2: That would make a lot more sense in my search history.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think there might be a mistake in the credits of this game. I'm pretty sure it's Manny, and I think someone just got – maybe it was written down and they mistook the N's for lowercase r's, which would make sense in how it got transcribed. They did get Ralph Shuckets, I believe they spelled his name right on there, which he's he told me is uh, – a and, and, in fact, I made a mistake on that as well. Um, and, and some of the other folks there we will be talking about um, – but yeah, there's a lot of folks there. Interestingly, I don't think we saw the voice actors credited specifically. If they are, I missed that in the end credits when I was reviewing the footage that I had recorded. But it is the usual four kids folks from the first couple seasons. But yeah, so that's sort of the, the folks involved here. We did kind of, since a lot of the, the people were, were sort of the usual folks you would kind of expect, I did kind of want to bring in some of the folks who came in specifically for this game. So hopefully that informed you a little bit as to who who those individuals are. Well, with that uh, sort of behind us, uh, let's kind of talk about the overall style of the music from this game. Now, as we mentioned, a lot of it is ported over from the To Be a Master album, which I should point out was has a number of international variants of it. It wasn't just an English album. There's a bunch of uh, there's a Spanish version, a French version, an Italian version, and so on and so forth. And then it also has a little bit of music from Pokemon the first movie. So uh, kind of a all very dub-centric uh, stuff there, but it seems like, to me at least, they were definitely going for a particular style there. We had, we had talked about in our stadium episode how they were kind of going there, it seems, for a sort of live sporting event, marching band type of style. This, I find, is not completely dissimilar. I mean, they are very faithful to sort of the, the album renditions of that. I, th- I think sort of the difference between this and stadium is that the um, the, the style of the music here, especially when they're replacing the—since the, the since there's no vocals on most of these songs, uh, when they're replacing the melody line, gives it very much sort of a, a house band type of feel, which some sports teams do. I think the Milwaukee Bucks have, or at least at one point did have, such a, a group that did their their stuff there. And I think that's sort of the difference between this and stadium. And— do you agree with that or do you have a different opinion or or whatever?
2: I do. Like the synth organ um very much evokes kind of the feel of like the the organ that they might play at like Fenway Park or something during a baseball game. Um the general style kind of like seems to alternate between vibes of that um very old-fashioned sporty like synth organ style of music and like almost like a jazzy elevator music vibe. It's a very interesting mix, I think.
0: Yeah, like I said, I can't totally verify what they were going for, but some of them definitely do sound a bit more like uh, professional is not the right word, and neither really is modern. But to me, like I said, the the feel I got is that this is sort of a a, a house band that is specifically hired for by a team to perform live music during... Uh, a game or in-between stuff and stuff like that. All right, so as usual, Anne and I have picked out a number of tracks we'd like to discuss. A lot of these are actually kind of in pairs because the way the game is structured, as is common in puzzle games, is that there's a base theme and there's usually like a more intense or fast or whatever version of it, when you know the blocks start getting towards the top and stuff like that. I mean, that goes way back at least to the like original Tetris and stuff like that on the on the Game Boy and NES, and maybe even a little further than that. Um, but very common in puzzle games. So, so be aware that a lot of these are going to come in, in, in sets of two. But um we wanted to talk about, first of all, actually a couple things that were brought over from the score of Pokemon in the first movie, specifically the English score. So the the first one that I kind of wanted to bring up is the one you get in the one player stadium, which is just the the versus computer mode, where you're trying to sort of defeat the computer at, at the puzzle league game uh, by out uh, you know arranging your tiles and, and sending garbage over to their side and whatnot. But whenever you get a badge or a an elite medal in some of the higher difficulties, basically whenever you beat uh, one of your opponents, you get uh, this song that is I believe. Based on the uh, the Dragonite takes flight theme from the the first movie, I would say that is definitely one of the more uh, triumphant ones in there. Uh, a lot of the first movie score, even like you know Tears of Life and stuff at the end, is not something you would put as sort of a, a triumphant theme, more of a, a relief or something like that. Uh, and is, is that kinda, does that kind of does that kind of make sense to you? Or
2: yeah, and it kind of speaks to the longevity I guess of uh, dragonite takes flight as a theme because we've heard that echoed throughout many games now um, much of the anime it's an and it's an iconic piece of music but one of the few things that's actually like triumphant and happy as you say in the first movie score
0: yeah have they been able to integrate more from the From the, from, from like, say, the second movie and stuff like that, maybe they could have used some version of, uh, The Legend Comes to Life or something like that in there, which would have been an interesting prospect. Mm -hmm. But, uh, as far as how that they sort of map that, it's, it's, you know, the N64, obviously it's a cartridge based system. So everything is sort of synthesized and stuff like that. They did an okay job with there. You can tell it's obviously not, uh, a live orchestra, uh, recording there. Um, so that kind of, is, is like that, but it's very obviously horn based with a little bit of string work there. Uh, and any thoughts on that side of it?
2: Not much. Like I, I feel like the constraints of the platform do this track a bit of a disservice in a sense, just because we've heard it in the movie with much more of a, a depth in orchestral arrangement. So when it's kind of imported over into a video game, and kind of given this um, more synthetic treatment, I-, I think you don't get the richness, but at the same time, the melody and the the basics of that theme are so powerful that it kind of transcends any instrumentation and any adaptation as well.
0: Yeah, the N64 sound hardware, which it doesn't really have a sound chip or anything like that, but It's kind of in in a a bit of an odd middle ground where it's not as advanced as some of the later stuff, but it's also not as basic as, you know, the NES or the Super Nintendo. So you you end up with something interesting. The point about, you know, not having the access to, you know, the full orchestral thing because you can't use digitized audio is something we'll probably come back to either later in the music discussion or in the post-discussion. So Mm. look forward to that. Now, Anne... You had picked a track as well, and I thought originally it was like based on the same thing, and maybe it is a little bit, but it is a distinct sort of track from uh, the score of Pokemon in the first movie. You want to talk a little bit about it?
2: Yeah, so I went for um, Let the Battles Begin, which is um, a riff that you hear in the anime. I actually had trouble pinning down the exact title of it, but it's uh, the theme that plays uh, in the first movie underneath um, the harbor master when all of the trainers are heading off to New Island and they're all very triumphantly riding their Pokemon and braving the storm. And it's a theme that comes up occasionally in the anime as well. I feel like we've heard it during leagues. It kind of gets used in a lot of the same contexts as Dragonite Takes Flight. So I think and I definitely think they're in like the same key. And you notice they probably had similar chord progressions. Like they all resolve the same. So I, I think there's definitely, they are speaking a common musical language there. But I really like it because that theme kind of evokes a, a sense of triumph. um, Kind of the same function that World of Pokemon gives. Like it just fills you with this sense of anticipation Which is why I think it gets used sometimes in League Championship episodes as well, and yeah, like I just heard it and I was like, it just felt like okay, I'm ready for this Pokemon battle as a puzzle. I I remember just liking it a whole awful lot.
0: Yeah, as as you mentioned, they they are kind of related and have some definite similarities beyond just you know being from the same same movie. They have some things there. It's it's sort of the. it's sort of an off to adventure theme, if you ask me. Um, sort of there mm. because that's what they're effectively doing is they're trying to cross the sea there in the movie and, and here in the game. It's, I believe, played as soon as the one player mode starts and you're about to battle Gary as the first opponent in that one. Um, so, I think you're about right there. I think it is a good placement there, and I think it definitely works. It does obviously have sort of the same limitations as the uh, the one based directly on Dragonite takes flight. So it's sort of You know, which I guess is to be expected, huh?
2: Yeah. I I mean, maybe I don't need to bring it up for every single track, but that is for a lot of these that were based off of previous iterations of music we've known. Like, it's hard not to notice that. It's not necessarily a, a huge detriment, but it's hard not to notice it.
0: Making my way any way that I can has a longer history than you might be aware of. It doesn't go super far back but the earliest version I found is by Winona Judd, on the soundtrack to the 1996 Whoopi Goldberg business comedy The Associate. The song would then show up on a Marsha Hines album in 1999, which was soon followed by the Billy Piper version you're probably familiar with. Each of these features a different arrangement, but the more electronic instrumentation in Piper's rendition is probably what made it the choice for the Pokémon soundtrack. As for the lyrical content of the song, the theme of strength overcoming adversity results in an experience that I think would have fit in very well on To be a master. What's most interesting, however, is the way phrases that were originally intended as metaphors become literal when applied to Pokémon. The source material is a game in which you cross rivers and climb mountains. If you really want to stretch it, there's also references to strength. Not bad for a song that was probably written before the games were even out in Japan. In any event, Feel free to check out those other versions. There's at least one more that I didn't mention. And let us know what you think. Thanks. All right, well, we, we had hinted at that, uh, but, you know, when you go through the one-player scene, that's going to expose you to a lot of the music from this game, actually, if you uh, go through that mode. Now, the number of stages depends on the difficulty you select. There are a total of up to, like, 16 of them. Um, but... The first uh, opponent in each mode you go to is, in fact, Gary, and his theme, uh, again, like as I mentioned earlier, most of these come in pairs where there's a a regular theme and then a sped-up version, but uh, it's based on Pokemon World, uh, specifically the TV version, not the movie version. I don't think they would have had uh, enough time to get that uh, in there for this, Um, but uh, Anne, uh, what made you pick this one out?
2: Um. Well, Pokemon World is a song that I've always loved, um, just kind of the the general feel and the beat of it, the movie version more than the TV version, and I chose it because this was one song where I heard it and I did not immediately recognize what it was. Um, There were a couple like that for songs that I don't typically listen to, but for Pokemon World, like a song I know very well, I was surprised that it took me so long to figure out that that's what this was. Um, so I picked it because I, I thought that was very interesting. That how much the instrumental a- and the just adaptation changed the feel of the song to the point where I didn't immediately recognize it as this melody and and song that I love. And part of that might be because Pokemon World kind of incorporates some uh, rap, uh, uh, speak, singy elements and rhythms that maybe don't translate as well to an instrumental. But I thought it was like a very interesting, I don't know, intellectual exercise, I guess, of how a song can change when you change one small thing. And, you know, the idea of what makes a song itself, what gives it its identity. And if you change that one thing, like, it, does the song become unrecognizable? So I just thought it was a very interesting uh, use of music, a very interesting change and in adaptation of music. And also, I, I miss Gary a lot. He's my favorite. He uh, was always going to be on this list, whatever his theme was.
0: Well, if I remember correctly, the way that is done structurally, the the regular version of that theme starts with the uh, uh, the melody starts... On the verse portion, it doesn't have that, you know, Mm -hmm. so you want to be a master of Pokemon. That part is not represented at the start of that track there. Do you think maybe that is what made it more difficult to recognize?
2: That's possible, yeah. Yeah, even when I knew that this was Pokemon World, it still took me a while to kind of like find my feet in the song. So again, yeah, I think there's a lot of very small things about that song that are iconic that were rendered very well not very differently but differently enough in this track that it felt like a different song
0: what about when you get to sort of the uh, the panic mode or the faster mode cuz i think there it goes straight into the chorus when it switches over there right
2: that that's where i, I started to clue in a little more yeah <laughs> it's it's definitely i think well maybe not necessarily actually i actually really did enjoy the the non panic kind of jazzy synth version um but I, I think I, overall that song was meant to be at a bit of a faster pace, and it's kind of suited more to that.
0: Yeah, and it switches between the two versions. The slower one, the melody is played by, a, I guess, a, a synth xylophone, whereas they use a, a pipe organ type sound for the uh, for the faster one, you know, where it goes into the chorus, but... So maybe that's also a factor. I I guess while we're here, I may as well ask: uh, What what do you think sort of the lasting status or stature of Pokemon World is then? Since this game seems to have made you think a little bit more about it structurally,
2: I definitely think it's the forgotten theme of the anime franchise, which is saying something. Considering like there have been a lot of themes, some of them that you know some of us didn't necessarily grow up listening to or or stopped watching the show to so we didn't become familiar with them but it's kind of like the one that everyone seems to just overlook and that might be because people overlook the Orange islands in general among anime fans or but also as a theme song it's a bit unusual uh, compared to other Pokemon themes we have the real iconic, pokemon theme and then the ones after that kind of seem to follow a similar flavor and a similar structure and then you have pokemon world which kind of seems to be doing its own thing like i don't know how to explain it real well but it's definitely incorporating a lot of um especially the movie version urban feels it's got a different sort of verse structure than um a lot of other themes in the Pokemon anime. Um, they, de- As you say, in the TV version, they kind of start with the, they they kind of take off that you know, opening riff a little bit um, to kind of make it more of a TV theme. I, I definitely think there's a lot to be mined kind of in song structure and what makes it resonate with an audience to find why Pokemon World, like I love it as a song and why when I think of Pokemon anime theme openings, it is not the one that comes to mind. Because that's an interesting dichotomy. And I definitely think its structure and its original instrumentation, I think that definitely plays a part in that.
0: Sounds like we might have some uh, material there if we ever do an underrated Pokemon Songs 2 episode on Mm. this. Because it is one of my favorites. Um, but It's
2: a good song.
0: <laughs> yeah, but it's definitely not as famous as the one before it, the original Pokemon theme, or even the one after it, Pokemon Johto. Johto. So yeah. it, it is a bit of an, an odd spot there. All right, well, let's move on. Um, so the stadium mode is structured in such a way that you go through like all the gym leaders from Gen 1 and stuff like that. So fairly early on, you have to battle against Misty. And, um, you know, you might think, oh, this is mostly from To Be A Master, so they're going to use Misty's song there. But actually, they don't do that. They use um, an instrumental version, or I guess two instrumental versions, I guess you could say, of Catch Me If You Can from the Pikachu's Vacations short from the first movie, which is kind of an interesting choice. I have to assume that the main reason they didn't use Misty's song is that that song is rather slow and they couldn't think of a good way to port it over um, and use it in this type of game. Although, there is a faster version on uh, of Misty's song uh, that is used uh, in Germany on the dance single for uh, In Their Dunkelheit Height, They're Knocked, basically the, the German version of Misty's song. Not sure if that would have been available by the time they were working on this game to use there, but I don't know. Andy, have any thoughts on them using Catch Me If You Can? Instead of using the uh, sort of Obvious choice there.
2: I support this choice. Um I agree like you could probably tweak the arrangement of Misty's song and make it a bit faster, but I like I love Catch Me As You Can as a song. Like it is one of my favorites on the um first movie soundtrack and I think it is a song that Rhythmically, um, like it has a female vocalist, like it's a song that could be used for Misty very well. And as an instrumental, I definitely think it kind of captures her youthful energy, in a in a good way.
0: Yeah, and you know, this is why Brian Steckler is is in the young credits there, is that they um, credit that. Although Catch Me If You Can, unlike some other things, is definitely a. a It was Since it was specifically written for the movie, I think that makes the rights for it a little bit different. But as far as Brian himself, I did get a chance to interview him a number of years ago, and I don't think this is in the interview itself, but I did kind of ask him about it. He didn't seem to really remember anything about this game, so I'm guessing his involvement at most was just signing a release or something like that Mm -hmm. so it could be used there. Um, You know, it's. I wish I kind of had more to say about the, the, the thing there. I think the most interesting thing about this, for me at least, is the fact that they use this instead of Misty's song. And I, I do think that was probably the right choice there. Um, but that's kind of what I have to say there. Any other thoughts, Anne?
2: Not really. <laughs> it's like yeah, I just like listening to this track. It's it's just a good song. It it's got a nice sense of rhythm to it.
0: All right. Well, with that being said, uh why don't we move on? You had chosen and you had chosen Sabrina's stage theme, uh, which is based on Everything Changes from To Be a Master. What made you pick that one out?
2: Well, this is a song, um, one of the ones that I listened to it and I thought it was so cool and that is a very obvious melody that is playing, but I don't recognize it. And so I had to look it up and found it was uh, the song Everything Changes. And that is a song that I've never particularly liked. Um, and I went back and re-listened to it. Like the vocalist, I like the lyrics. The vocalist just isn't doing it for me. It's kind of got a similar vibe to the original track, but it, you know it's again slightly more synthier or instrumentation. Hearing it um, just as an instrumental and, and being used kind of for Sabrina, who is one of the gym leaders I have a lot of feelings and opinions about, made me fall in love with this song in a way that um, I hadn't when I just by listening to its original iteration. So I thought that was very special.
0: So as far as the vocal version uh, for English that's Celia Brody does the Everything Changes uh mm-hmm. can you go into a little more detail there about what kind of bothered you about it or whatever
2: Um it's kind of mostly just like that ephemeral sense of like there are some things you like and some things you're just kind of like ambivalent on or but like generally speaking um overly breathy female vocals like do or or vocals in general don't tend to resonate with me as much. Um, I, I just don't like them as much. I think we've had a similar discussion with some of, I think it was Haven Pachelle, some of her songs, like, I've mentioned I prefer it when, like, the vocals are less breathy. Um, but, again, it's not like a real, like, oh, she sang it so terribly. She didn't. It's just... Less my taste, and so I just never gravitate to that song because it opens up very sad, very melancholy, very breathy, and again, that's just not my jam.
0: <laughs> and yet, somehow, this this thing with uh, Sabrina using it as that theme just kind of clicked for you. And is it just the arrangement then in this in this version of the game, sort of the N sixty four limitations working in its favor for you, or?
2: Possibly. Like, again, just hearing it as an instrumental kind of highlighted the fact that that is a really good song. It's a a very soft, lovely melody. Uh, It kind of brought out the melancholy stuff. Like, just a lot about the song that I just was not as willing to appreciate because I just didn't enjoy listening to it as much as other tracks. It it was the one I tended to skip over. So it kind of highlighted a lot about that song that is really awesome. Um, And again, it being used for Sabrina, somebody who is a very melancholy character um, and has, has been through some changes. And like I said, I just have a lot of feelings about her. Um, again, just kind of brought that song into the forefront so I could appreciate it in a way that I never had before.
0: Kind of an interesting thing there. Maybe it's a little bit of a less is more or just uh, in the right context. So kind of interesting. I'm I'm really kind of surprised to hear that I guess my thoughts I do like this arrangement but um it's definitely a song where I think the um the chorus is very recognizable and that's where sort of the basis for the the speed up version of it when the blocks get near the top so um it goes straight into the everything changes changes you know it goes r- straight into that part of it Uh, That was kind of the part that struck me, but I find it very interesting that having it used in the game this way actually made you uh, appreciate it more. I I love things like that.
2: Yeah, I I know a lot of people really loved it as it is, so I, I kind of feel happy that I can kind of join in in that band camp now. Bandwagon, I think, maybe might have been the word I meant to use.
0: Well, speaking of melancholic characters, who I guess also have ties to the psychic type, Perhaps one of the few original tracks in this song is used for Mewtwo's theme. Now, Mewtwo, you have to do some some work, usually, to play on that stage. The The one-player stadium comes with three difficulties uh, the by default, and then you can unlock a fourth and a fifth difficulty. And on those higher difficulties, after you refight Gary, uh, you go through a cutscene that looks a little bit different than it did on hard mode. And uh, there you have to go against the Puzzle Master, who, like I said, turns out to be Mewtwo, which is uh, maybe not the most surprising thing out there, especially if you uh, go through the sound test a little bit. Um, But the theme there is sort of this—I'm not sure exactly how to describe it. I think this must be one of the things that was done uh, by that one guy who was the uh, the sound coordinator. If I had to guess as to what Lawrence Swedler composed or arranged for this game— um, that was not something the previous existing. I have to assume it was this. First of all, kind of going back to what I said about catch me if you can, I, I suppose the obvious choice here, since they have already got some squirrel and Mr. Pokemon in the first movie, would have been to use something derived from Mewtwo's theme in there. You know, the da-da-da-da-da-da-da. That one in there you think would have been sort of the obvious choice here, but they didn't go with that. I don't know if they had trouble translating it. So first off, any thoughts, saying that they didn't use that?
2: It is very surprising, um, it, kind of in the way that Misty's uh, the choice not to go with the obvious choice there made a lot of sense. This one, like, the reasoning I'm not as sure on, which is not to say it, it, that there's no reasoning or that it's a bad choice, but it is definitely not the, the pick we would have all expected. Um, and given that, I still can't figure out if this song is an original piece or if it is... Um, an arrangement of something pre existing. It's hard to figure out what the reasoning was behind that, but I don't know which one like unlike Misty where it's like, yes, this was clearly the right choice. I don't know which which way would have gone better. I it ended up nice, but I'm very curious as to why not the original Mewtwo theme.
0: I can, I can only guess that they might have had an issue with the, the way it's presented in the score of the first movie. There are a few places where it goes on for a little bit, but definitely not as long as some of the other tracks that are used in this game. It it doesn't have you know a long enough case there. They might have had to piece something together and create something semi-original, maybe they just couldn't do that, or maybe some sort of licensing or something fell through or something like that. As far as what they did end up using here, to be honest, kind of the... They have some similarities between the slow and the fast version, but they do have—I can't think of what I want to compare it to in terms of of stuff there. It is very kind of dark and ominous, but in a way, I can't really put it into words. Anne, did you have any bear luck there?
2: It feels very Mewtwo, like sense of foreboding, check, like— mildly unsettling even though you can't actually tell that nothing is wrong feels like a boss fight but is also very like subdued and mel- like it feels like a Mewtwo track <laughs> I don't know that it necessarily feels like you are facing the ultimate ultimate boss like get ready for the battle of your life feel that you would normally expect from the ultra hard mode final battle but it, it definitely feels like it fits Mewtwo as a as a anime character
0: all right well while we're discussing the the possibility of alternatives there i also want to throw out one other score element from Pokemon the first movie the three on three track which is the one that gets used in the um what is it oh it's the one that's used when the starter full evolutions are battling their clones um in in the first movie do you think that might have been something they could have used here
2: that could be, because that, that is definitely something that's got a lot of dynamic qualities to it.
0: Yeah, so that might have been another choice there. But as it stands, we have what may well be an original track created for this game. One of the very few, if it is. But uh, maybe not, not terrible, but not what we expected either. So I did want to kind of call that out there as sort of a, a point of discussion, I guess, is the best word I can come up with. mm. All right. Well, we talked. There's a lot more music we didn't talk about. Unfortunately, I, I kind of wished in retrospect that we had talked about some stuff from the, the the spa service, which is the Line Clear Team Rocket mode that you get in there. That's some stuff we might talk about in the uh, bonus segment when we talk about some of the the non musical aspects. Um, but there's definitely a lot of voice acting in this game. I'm not sure for the European versions how much of that they might have changed for each region or stuff like that. But uh, obviously, you know, there's a lot of characters from the anime here, and they're all voiced pretty much. Um, I think Mewtwo is is definitely not uh, Jay Goede uh, from the first movie, a.k.a. Philip Bartlett. It's someone else. It might be Dan Green. I'm not sure. But uh, in any case, uh, it's definitely the four kids cast doing the the roles you would expect there. Uh, You know, for for Rachel Lewis and Vernica Taylor and Eric Stewart and all the the rest there. We even get Butch and Cassidy in this game. Which is kind of interesting,
2: <laughs>
0: but um, Anne, any thoughts on the voice acting here?
2: Not like a whole lot to say. Like I, I spent a lot of time like going through some of the the dialogue scenes and trying to pick out how much of it was um recorded specifically for this game and how much of it was using just sound clips that they already had on hand. I am fairly confident that they did not get Ikue Otani to record Pikachu. I'm pretty sure that they just used existing clips, but there were definitely some lines of dialogue between, like, say, Ash and Professor Oak and the like that were recorded specifically for this game. So that was kind of an interesting exercise.
0: Yeah, and I guess, you know, there must have been some stuff that they recorded for this because just to make this game a little more unusual, it's an N64 game with full motion video. Which, um, if you actually pick up a cartridge of this, you may notice it is it is definitely heavier than other N64 games, and that's really just, I guess, because of all the the chips they had to put in the in the cartridge to hold you know a couple minutes of full motion video in this game. And and I, like I said, I think the voice acting for that is pretty much all new. So, but yeah, I'm not sure I have too much else to say. I mean, as far as how the voice clips are used, like during the the one on one battles and stuff like that, it's pretty similar to some of the stuff in the Panel DePon and Tetris attack games that came before it. The, the ones that came after have been other than like puzzle collection have not been as themy. So they haven't had voice clips to the same degree and stuff like that. They've just basically, basically use regular sound effects. So this is a bit unusual in that regard, but uh, just wanted to make sure we talked about it though. Uh, any other thoughts on it, Anne?
2: Yeah. Um, I thought it was just really a neat way to kind of bring it into the anime, like an extra step that I don't think they would have had to take to sell us on the game. Um, obviously, some of the animation is just kind of repurposed um, scenes from the anime, it looks like. But that's still like, and to get actual voiceover and the like it is like an extra step to kind of bring some richness to the game that again, for... The type of simplistic game it is, I don't think they would have needed to do to get us on board.
0: So with that being said, I think it's time to give kind of our overall impressions of the music of this game. Um, I think they did a a relatively decent job, and I I think that this definitely shows some of the the lasting impact, even though this game was made, you know, within a year of that album, of the Tubia Master, that these songs, you know, at least in their their, uh, CD versions or whatever, have definitely stuck with us. So I think they made some good picks here. Anne, uh, what what's sort of your overall impression then of the of the sound and the music of this game?
2: Thought it was a very interesting choice at first to kind of go with that ballpark organ elevator music jazz feel. Like uh, the track that popped out to me the most was when you are defeated, and it like basically elevator music. Um, that was an interesting choice, um, but it grew on me over time. Like it's not what I would have expected for a game that is based off of solving puzzles very high paced, but it maybe in that way it works for it. it. It's not agitating. it's it's kind of just soothing and fun as you're playing this game. You don't feel necessarily overwhelmed and like you need to have ADHD to succeed.
0: Yeah, I think the overall design kind of lends itself well to something like this. But yeah, it, and you know, it, it does definitely set itself apart from you know, the paneled upon Tetris Attack stuff, which uses uh, not completely dissimilar, but definitely compositionally different music in, in terms of different source material there. But uh, yeah, and we'll certainly do a comparison of the music of this game when we do uh Pokemon Puzzle Challenge sometime later this year, most likely. Okay, so I did want to briefly mention some feedback. Unfortunately, I'm not going to have a chance to put it up there just because it was pretty long there. But, uh, Filippo Depo uh, gave us a big, big re- reply to our discussion on, uh, the music of Mewtwo Strikes Back Evolution that we did about a month ago. He was more happy with some of the, uh, with some of the changes made there than I was, certainly for sure. Uh, I don't think the musical changes they made ruined the movie. But I definitely felt they diminished it. He was uh, more up with getting a little closer to the Japanese score and, and whatnot there. But uh, definitely check that out if you get a chance. Yeah, but And I do want to mention that at the same time, he did kind of respect my opinion there in terms of he understood some of where I was coming from. And that's something we certainly try to encourage on this series. But uh, a little too much to, to sort of put all in there, but definitely check that out on the video if you can. All right, well, you may be wondering what's our next one. Our next one is going to be what I believe to be the last Gen 1 Pokémon side game. We're going to talk about the music of Hey You, Pikachu. Now, if you don't remember, this is a voice recognition-based game. It was developed by Umbrella with some assistance, I think, from some folks from HAL. And that one is definitely going to have more of a traditional N64 Pokémon game type of soundtrack, although most of the stuff there is original, not based on the, the main series games. We're going to have some definite fun talking about that. Now, it is a little hard to track down a, a copy of this because you also need that that microphone peripheral. And I don't think you... Did you ever have a chance to play this game back in the day or anything like that?
2: I did not. And it sounds like something I would have loved.
0: <laughs> well, it, it's a bit unusual. It's, it's sort of... Not unlike this game, Pokémon Puzzle League, that was only released in a few territories, so was this one. It was only released in Japan and in, I think the U.S., probably because of the difficulty of getting voice recognition to work for a bunch of different languages. But uh, if you don't have a chance to track it down, which might be very difficult at this point, um, I did do a full playthrough of it a number of years ago, about a decade ago at this point. And uh, you can see me communicate with Pikachu. But that is going to be our next discussion. Um, so look forward to that in the future. Uh, until then, and thank you very much for being on. Thank you. All right, folks. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the PokePress Digest podcast. We'd appreciate it if you rate or review us on your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to find more of our great content, visit our website at pokepress.blogspot.com. If you'd like to contact us, send an email to pokepress at gmail.com or follow at PokePress on Twitter. Okay, well, time to talk about the game itself. We had mentioned a few things here and there about sort of, uh, you know, the I think the one-player or the two-player versus mode is, is one of the defining features. But Anne, it sounds like you were most attracted to the line-clear mode. Do you want to explain a little bit about that and why you liked it?
2: Um, yeah, um, the line-clear is where they kind of, they place a sort of, a, a line, basically, on the grid, um, and then you basically have to just clear all the blocks down to that level, and, you know, it progressively gets lower, so you have to clear more and more lines of blocks. I liked that a lot. Like, it just was very... To, to me, like, Tetris and puzzles like these are, are kind of a very... I don't want to think about them too hard, which is why I didn't love Puzzle University as much, but, like, it was just a very straightforward game style, and also, it was the... The line clear was something they used in the spa section, which was Team Rocket's section, and I got to just go through all their lovely, lovely, greatest hits costumes.
0: Yeah, yeah. Going back to the first movie, they have what? They have the 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 one where they have the uh, the the Viking ship with Meowth yes, on the front of that. Vikings. If you missed that from yeah. the remake of, of uh, Mewtwo Strikes Back, and uh, they've also got they've got a Kabuki one. They've got a wedding themed one. Um,
2: Right, yeah, the wedding episode, I think it was episode number 100, actually, I think, maybe it's not, but like, yeah, that one where James is the bride and Jesse's got the pompadour of everyone's dreams.
0: Yeah, I, I kind of like the the music on that one. It's a variation of I forget it's Wagner's Wedding March or something like that. But the the sped up version, just to bring music in for a little bit, the horns there kind of remind me of some of the stuff from core for the N64 game. And unless you watched my uh, video from a number of years ago, you probably know nothing about, but sorry. <laughs> But that is that is a, usually just called lying clear in the uh, in most other variations and it, that's the way it works like that um did you get to the boss stages in that though there's there's two of them there's one after round three and one after round six
2: Giovanni right and
0: this is where bush and Cassie are in between rounds three and four oh, and then yeah. Giovanni is after round six
2: yes i i did sorry I'm thinking several several weeks back now, but yes i yeah. I got, but I got to Bush and Cassidy, and I did get to Giovanni once.
0: And those work a little bit differently. There, instead of trying to get below a line, you're trying to just do as much uh, chains and combos and stuff to lower their health meter while yeah. the blocks rise up very quickly. Uh, how did that work out for you, Anne? <laughs> Sorry. It,
2: it was not as much my... It, it was a lot more eff- mental effort than I wanted to put into a game um, like that like the the gameplay of this in general like i i'm there for things that are like fun and addicting like creating chains and combos was like too much effort but i did it for the sake of team rocket but yeah like i prefer just the straight line clear if i had my choice
0: definitely more more approachable than some of the other modes even though the the versus one player and two player is 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 sort of the the one you you see a lot yeah I guess what I should point out this also is, I think, maybe the only version of Puzzle League slash paneled upon that has a 3D mode, uh, where you have a cylindrical play field, and you can rotate it around and stuff like that. And, and you have to keep an eye on the back side as well as the front side there and, and stuff like that. The last half of the line clear, clear mode uses that. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you had too much thought about that, Anne, but um, wh- I- I- anything to say? I know you haven't played the other entry, so I'm just kind of curious.
2: I did not play a lot of that um i I actually have very few memories of that like I'm not sure I actually did play it like I know it exists though like but it's, it's weird. I did not like that though. <laughs> um, I think I like the idea of it and we can maybe talk about this later um, if they update this ever- game someday. but um I, I feel like as it existed it's an idea that was intriguing, but I didn't actually like
0: Yeah, Well, like I said, we haven't seen it again. And you do kind of have to, uh, to seek it out a little bit. It's used for the back half of the, the spa team rocket mode. And so there are also some Mm -hmm. 3d puzzles and you can do 3d, uh, in versus mode, although the computer doesn't really have proper AI for it, for whatever reason. And I, like I said, I don't think they brought it back for later versions. So I guess that's, you know, maybe something there. Um, I did kind of want to mention you know, the other the 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 puzzle university mode, or, or it's just sometimes called the puzzle mode, is where you have a uh, a set number of moves, and you know that's 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 obviously sort of the brain teaser portion, and they they have a large number of puzzles there. But it sounds like that didn't really interest you a whole lot, huh?
2: Not so much. No, I don't know what to say other than yeah, it was not my thing. I I just play that game to try not to die. So. <laughs> Like, I don't want to also think about doing a set number of moves or specific moves.
0: All right. Well, let's see. What else is there? There's also a time trial mode and an endless mode, which is just play till you lose, and the blocks just keep coming faster and faster there. Um, I did kind of want to mention that one, I guess you could say, improvement of this over the, um, over the Super Nintendo version is because the N64 CPU is more powerful for... Uh, for the versus computer mode in, in the Super Nintendo version, the, the unlockable difficulty, the very hard mode, is um, just a little bit tougher than that uh, of the hard mode there. But in this version, the very hard and super hard mode are, especially towards the end, I mean, they were able to write some incredibly efficient AI for that. I, I can kind of see why you had trouble getting to Mewtwo there since it's only on the last couple difficulties. And by the way, in order to beat it, you have to beat Gary and then Mewtwo without losing to either one to complete the mode. There, it's it's pretty kind of difficult to be honest. Um, this is another game though, with with Mewtwo as a final boss. Do you think that that makes that one work a little bit better, or?
2: Um, I, I'm kind of of two minds because on the one hand, I loved the idea of gary being the final boss so it's like having knowing that there was a mewtwo kind of took away from that like i love the idea of nerd that anime gary oak is gets to be the puzzle champion it is feels very fitting to me and i liked that um but again mewtwo is always just going to be the final boss of everything um given that it is so heavily based on the anime that he is super into puzzles is an interesting thought i had not considered so like it's hard for me to set aside anime brain and like just think about the conventions of the game in which case obviously mewtwo is going to be the boss and that will always be the right choice um in in terms of bringing in their anime personalities into it um i i'm not sure it really tracks but mewtwo has many wide and varied interests i'm sure sure
0: I mean, you know, obviously Mewtwo is super intelligent, which since this is a puzzle game, I think that makes that yeah. work pretty well. Like if this has been based on the story of the second movie and you <laughs> had to fight Lawrence the third as the final boss, you know, it's not quite the same um, mm. dynamic there. So I thought actually that Mewtwo was a great choice there. Maybe I don't have as high opinion of of Gary's intelligence <laughs> as you do there.
2: <laughs> well... He might not be smart, but he's definitely a nerd. Like, I can see him, like, being on the school puzzle team.
0: <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the sort of overall presentation, because, you know, for especially for, like I said, the versus mode, which, which, as you can kind of tell to me, has been kind of the highlight of this game for a, a lot. Um, you know, you get to choose a Pokemon uh, from each, depending on which character you're playing as and stuff like that. Um, it does not mechanically really matter, though, and I think that's probably actually for the best because you wouldn't want to have someone pick Sabrina with all the psychic types and then go against Koga or Team Rocket who are mostly or all poison types. I think that would work out quite poorly if, if you got a type advantage there. But Anne, uh, do you kind of agree with that or do you have a different opinion or what?
2: Um, mildly different opinion. I don't, like, um, I don't like it in games when they give you a choice that ends up not mattering. Um, so I would have liked to see a bit more of an effect of something happening when you picked a certain Pokemon. I think they could have done more with that, like maybe picking a Jolteon gets you more yellow bricks drop or something. Um, but I, I definitely think a type advantage, like you said, was would probably not be the best way to go. Um, yeah, like the, there were... I don't know. I liked this game for what it was. There were a lot of things that, like, if I were asked to remake it, I would probably do differently. Um, And definitely a lot of things I wasn't expecting. Like, when you hear the name Puzzle League, to me that conjures up almost more of a Professor Layton thing or, like, the puzzle challenges in the Pokemon Game Boy games where you have to, like, navigate your way out of a cave. And I feel that this game had less of that so i would have maybe liked to see different types of challenges that it wasn't all these matching up tetrisy like games and maybe picking pokemon could have factored into that
0: well in i know in planet puzzle league they have modes where there are like power ups you can use and stuff like that so that might have been something they thought about for this but didn't either didn't have time or stuff like that Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that's that's a a few more things I wanted to to bring in here. First of all, this was released in 2000 on the N 64 However, it's a game that has, you know, full motion video, maybe a couple minutes of it between all the different cut scenes or whatever, and also has, you know, voice clips, also has music, which they had to sort of take from and and transform into sort of chiptune versions. I want to throw out the possibility that, they could have released this a little over a year later and made this a GameCube game near or at launch. Um, and, you know, since that was a disc-based console, they would have had a lot of room for more full-motion video. They might have been able to use the original, you know, digital audio instead of the uh, the versions that they have here and and stuff like that. Uh, do you think that would have made sense, Anne, or, or what do you think?
2: Um, I definitely think releasing it on the later console and delaying it a year would have um, given them time to work out some things and, and obviously have a, a different technological base to work off of to like, like the the video probably could have improved the the sound quality improved like a lot of things could have been better in the game itself. I don't know that necessarily it would have been the best overall because it's hard to tell what the market wanted at the time um, and if delaying its release a year would have meant it would not sell. And I think that's definitely something to consider. Delaying a game's release a year might not seem like a big deal like when you're just considering like it would have been a better game. Um, But when you're considering of like would anyone have actually bought it though could like like I think it's better to have gotten this game out into the world and to have made a profit on it than for the minimal upgrades it would have gotten by being released uh, later on the GameCube. Um, I also think uh, I mean it's not like no Pokemon games were ever released for like um, the GameCube or other consoles. But I think definitely keeping it within the Nintendo brand um, has been good for Pokemon because um, I have played other game franchises where that's, they kind of play around with a lot of different platforms and like platforms outside of a specific brand even. And it it's frustrating. So I, I think there's a lot of details that go into that decision that maybe could have outweighed uh, the benefits of waiting to put it on the GameCube.
0: All right. Well, well, there are a few things I want to add to all that. First of all, if this had been around at the, you know, near the GameCube launch, it might have pushed more units of the console. Which, I mean, Mm. as far as like the first holiday season in in the U.S., uh, sort of the big games were Luigi's Mansion, Pikmin, uh, Rogue Squadron, Star Wars game. And uh, by a few weeks after launch, before the holidays, they released Melee for the GameCube, uh, Smash Brothers. So mm-hmm. for that holiday season, they had a pretty good lineup. But I do think that having a Pokemon game might have pushed a few extra units. You know, it might not have been something that people could justify. It is kind of a smallish game in a certain way, and that may be why the puzzle collection came out in Japan eventually. But um, I think it might have pushed some unit sales, so that might have been. And would have sold decently well. From what I understand, this is Mm. not the highest-selling Pokémon game ever or anything like that. Not being released in Japan may have worked against it in a lot of ways. But I did kind of want to throw that out there That as an early GameCube title for that first thing there. And, and, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, there were a number of late N64 games that were moved to GameCube, in fact. There was Mm -hmm. um, Eternal Darkness was moved over to GameCube. Dinosaur Planet, which would eventually become Star Fox Adventures, became a GameCube title, um, and stuff like that. So it's not like it it never happened uh, where stuff Mm -hmm. got moved to the next system there, even though the N64 and the GameCube are very different game consoles, uh, hardware-wise, not just in terms of storage medium. And, you know, maybe they could have crammed some stuff from the second or the third movie in there. Now, the the flip side of that might have been that, you know, those movies were less successful than the first movie, so... Uh, You're kind of, you know, balancing things out. But, you know, I did kind of want to throw that out there. It would have given them a shot to put in the the real, you know, CD audio or whatever in some form and and stuff like that. So I did kind of want to throw that out there. Now, one thing I wanted to add on top of all that... (laughs) Is that as an experiment, I can't put this on YouTube for kind of obvious reasons. Uh, one of the odd things about the music in Pokemon Puzzle League is you can actually turn just the music, just the sound effects, or both off for some reason in the sound in the options menu. Huh. And I did a, a playthrough of like the the versus computer mode where I uh, turned the music off and spliced in some of the original music, which, like I said, that's why I, I can't put this on YouTube or anything like that for copyright reasons. Um, just to see what it might be like and give myself a taste. Uh, I can't really justify, you know, finishing the whole thing for something I'm never going to publish, but it did give it a bit of a different feel. And I would have been interested yeah. to see what we might have gotten had this been on a, a system with a higher memory capacity on its media. Um, they might have wanted to actually strip out the vocals and replace those with instruments anyway, so they, A, don't have to create a bunch of different versions for different languages and get all the rights cleared for that, And I think it might be a little weird for the tracks to keep going back. If they had vocals from like the slow to the fast to the slow to the fast, that might get a little weird. (laughs) Any thoughts on any of that, Anne? uh...
2: That is an interesting experiment. I I would also be really interested um, to see what could have happened with Going on those lines, did did you enjoy it? Um, it was
0: a different experience. Uh, obviously, they're still mixed in with like the the less than CD fidelity sound effects and whatnot in the game, so it is a little off putting. Mm-hmm. But it felt like it it more or less worked. Um, I didn't get a chance. I didn't get into it deep enough to try to swap between the slow and the fast versions in there the way they would in the game, so that they might have had to take a slightly different approach there if they used that. But I don't know. Uh, it just seems kind of like a, an interesting possibility.
2: That's cool.